This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to Brew Different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. The precursors um, for these uh, biotransformation events, what we're talking about with the release of thiols, they're at least 1,000-fold more abundant than the free thiols themselves. So it's a massive pool of potential to release aroma in both malt and hops. Throw hops in the mash and yield higher thiol aroma. This week on the show, more developments related to some of my favorite topics, thiols, crisper yeast. Also, the first convincing argument for mash hopping that I've ever heard and more. Hi, I'm Laura Burns. I'm Director of Research and Development at Omega Yeast. Hi, I'm Lance Shainer, co-owner of Omega East in Chicago. Back on episode 195, we heard about the work Chris Curtin and Karen Fortman had done to classify brewing yeast strains in regards to their potential to release polyfunctional thiols from thiol precursors. That classification was all related to a gene known as IRC7. For anyone who hasn't already listened to that episode, or for those of us who need to jog our memories, give us a quick refresher on what IRC7 is and describe the variation that's been observed among different yeast strains. Okay, so IRC7 is a a gene that encodes a beta lyase enzyme, uh, which is responsible for cleaving carbon sulfur bonds. And in the context of... um, kind of what they need this for, it's often proposed to be a mechanism for them to acquire sulfur from the environment. And and it's part of kind of this pathway for amino acid biosynthesis that requires um, sulfur compounds. So why we're interested in this beta lyase for brewing is that there are carbon sulfur conjugates that link up uh, polyfunctional thiols to amino acids. and, And without this enzyme can cleave um, and release the, the thiol compounds from the amino acids, and it's, it's required for that. So it's the only 
gene thus far that is shown to have this activity in brewing strains or not, well, I guess in Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So that's kind of why we're really interested in it. Different brewing strains and wine strains, this, this hasn't really been an essential gene for them. So they don't necessarily kind of need it. And they also don't um, really mind if it becomes mutated or if it becomes non-functional. So there was really not a lot of pressure or selective pressure for these um, industrial yeast to maintain a functional IRC7. So many of our wine strains have truncated alleles where they're, they're missing a, sh- uh, a short 38 base pair sequence at the, uh, at the end of the gene. Um, and that occurs a lot in the wine, in the wine clad. And then in the brewing strains, there's a lot of kind of similar uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms that result in a non-functional IRC7. So yeah, it's kind of a widespread kind of like uh, feature of a lot of our industrial strains because they didn't have selective pressure to maintain this gene. Um, it's often a non-functional allele. And it goes even beyond that. There's a regulatory element uh, involved here too, in that uh, this gene is not expressed. So even if a yeast, say, had a functional version of the gene, it's not expressed in most brewing contexts uh, because there's high amounts of nitrogen around and this gene is repressed by nitrogen. Uh, so it's even if you have a functional version, it's still a problem because it's still not making uh, this enzyme. And we think a lot of these assays that other people have uh, done to look at the activity of this uh, gene have kind of been clouded by that fact. I mean, if they're growing, trying to do these assays by growing these yeasts and uh, nitrogen replete media, they're also not going to see anything because it's just make, not making this enzyme. So there's kind of, a, there's a lot of layers here. There's uh, broken versions of the gene, uh, but there's also this regulatory element that means it's not going to be expressed even if it is a functional gene. What's what's different about the thiol precursors that are found in beer versus wine? In grapes, there's mostly the, the cis-bound precursor, and there's either the cis-4-MSP, or you might also see that as 4-MMP, uh, and cis-3-SH. And that's really actually the uh, precursor for the IRC7 enzyme. Um, in contrast, m- most of the precursor present in uh Beer and, or sorry, and malt and hops is actually kind of a more complex version of that precursor. Uh, it's got either glutathione or multiple amino acids attached to the to the thiol. Um, so there really requires a little bit of uh, kind of processing of the more complex precursors from malt and hops to make them into the cysteine bound form, which is the precursor for the um, IRC7 enzyme. So there are other precursors found in hops as well um, that have been shown to be really rich in uh, Southern Hemisphere hops in particular. And um, we find these often in our analyses as well. And that would be um, this 3S4MPOL precursor. Um, and, and that's kind of interesting for us as well because that's not typically found in grapes. And do those also require sort of more steps? Are they more bound or are they less bound? It is, it is pretty similar in that um, the majority of these are in the glutathione-bound form. Um, okay. And it takes a little bit more processing to get them to the cysteine-bound um, form. Any practical takeaways from sort of this difference between the thiol precursors that are 
you know, typical in beer versus wine? Um, the, I, the, the takeaway is that uh, there, there's, while there's a ton of precursor, a lot of it is in a form that's not necessarily accessible to the yeast, even if it has uh, elevated IRC7 activity, but there's still plenty, um, you know, for it to have a, an aromatic impact, plenty of the cis-bound form to have an aromatic impact. And there are uh, ingredients and methods that you can use to kind of enhance that uh, pool of available precursor. The precursors um, for these uh, biotransformation events, what we're talking about with the release of thiols, they're at least 1,000-fold more abundant than the free thiols themselves. So it's a massive pool of potential to release aroma in both malt and hops. Um, and this is something that we haven't really tapped into uh, with our more uh, traditional brewing strains. Listeners know I'm a big fan of GM yeast strains. That topic has come up on the show many times. We've discussed some of the strains that Berkeley Yeast has engineered, as well as Sour VCA from Lalamond, and we've had plenty of folks weigh in on the evolving public opinion of GM ingredients. Let's hear about Omega's GM approach to thialize brewing strains. So Omega's approach has really been uh, thus far more targeted towards cisgenic changes, and uh, what I mean by that is taking you know existing capabilities in yeast and only using um, you know, yeast components to uh, activate these pathways. Um, and th that really actually has a, an impact on the regulatory side of things too. So um, these aren't necessarily, you know, GMOs in the sense of a transgenic uh, organism where you're taking a gene from another organism and putting it into Saccharomyces. We have thus far favored an approach where uh, we take existing yeast capabilities and just uh, amplify them. Um, and in this case, the approach we used was uh, CRISPR-Cas9. Um, and uh, step one was actually finding a functional IRC7. Um, and one of the interesting things is very early on in our studies, we uh, created a version where we amplified the IRC7 from you know, the famous Chico strain. Um, and really, at the beginning, we considered that to be our what we thought was going to be our negative control. Because uh, there was uh, published data suggesting that that allele wasn't functional, um, and certainly, you know, Chico is not known to be uh, a high thiol producing strain. So um, we uh, basically put a an alternative promoter in front of the existing Chico IRC7 gene, um, whereas in normal brewing context, that gene is not turned on. Uh, we put a promoter in it that is constitutive. So in other words, it's just always on. It's always churning out IRC7 enzyme. Um, so when we first did these experiments and we sent them off to France for analysis at Niswas, uh, we were expecting the Chico version to be uh, you know, our negative control and not see any uptick in thiols. And we did. And so this was kind of, you know, at first, you know, we didn't necessarily, we weren't sure if we, you know, swapped a sample or that we should believe what we were seeing. Uh, and on the other hand, the British 5 strain, which is our, you know, most popular strain for hazies, uh, was actually not showing a bump in um, files like we had uh, expected and hoped. So we kind of got the opposite, uh, you know, results of what we were expecting, but we stuck with it. Uh, and found that indeed the, the Chico version of IRC7 is functional 
Uh, it's just that it's probably more highly repressed, which is why the prior studies that people had done had suggested it wasn't uh, functional. It does have a SNP, uh, but uh, a single nucleotide polymorphism that results in amino acid uh, difference at one position compared to wild type. But that appears to not be uh, necessarily important for activity because we've shown repeatedly that that uh, allele is functional now. Um, so with all of that information uh, at hand, we uh, made a cassette that had the Chico version of IRC7 with an alternative promoter and, uh, and used CRISPR to insert that into our British 5 strain, which of course you know, had the non-functional IRC7. So we couldn't just drop a promoter in front of uh, native IRC7. Um, but, but again, this is, you know, our approach here is using existing yeast capabilities um, and not bringing in any transgenic DNA. Uh, and I think that's one of the neat parts of the story is that this is uh, something that yeast can do. It just kind of needs to have a few of its parts rearranged to be able to do it efficiently. So which strains have you thialized thus far? Uh, so the the cosmic punch strain that we have out um, and a lot of breweries are using is the London 3 or British 5 uh, equivalent um, with the dialyzed uh, IRC7. So we, we have that Chico version of IRC7 amped up in um, everybody's favorite hazy IPA strain. So it works really good in context with hops, but also pulls a lot of that potential for thial aroma out of the malt and hop precursors. So it just gives an elevated bump of thials um, in the finished product. So that one is really awesome because it kind of adds to and it amplifies the hoppy character. But then we also have been playing around with several other versions. We haven't, they're kind of prototype. They haven't made it out to, um, or we aren't commercializing them yet. But uh, ones that we find really exciting and some of the staff favorites, I would say, would be our lager strain with the thialized capability um, because in a lager recipe, these styles become very apparent uh, because they're not clouded out by some of the heavy dry hopping and other really potent aromas that are coming through. Cool. So, so, so far you just have the one cosmic punch is the, is the one commercially available strain. And then um, you're going to send me some other uh, fun ones to play with that are not <laughs> available to anybody else just yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, ev everybody who's interested in this concept definitely <laughs> needs to stay, stay updated because we definitely are uh, working on a couple of more ideas. I don't think we're going to you now just put every strain in our collection with this capability, but right. the ones that really make sense for, um, beer styles or thials are, are really welcome, then, you know, we're excited about playing with them and, and showing their potential. That's cool. As I was preparing for this, uh, I just, and I saw somewhere in my notes that you had been, that you were also working on the lager version. Um, we just did an episode on cold IPA and I was like, How, maybe I'll brew a cold IPA and split it and do like half of it with with um, Omega's stylized strain and see what Oof, happens. That sounds so good. And honestly, that's the best way to do it. Um, yeah. We have a lot of people who maybe only try the, the thialized strain and to get a really good picture of what it brings. It's so nice to have it next to the parental strain and, right. and be able to do sensory on both. And yeah. that was part of our, even our process in developing these strains was the sensory training and, you know, attribute recognition to be able to really pick these compounds out. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting once people 
have better a better idea what dials bring to sensory. Cool. Um, with your technology, is everything happening intracellularly, or is the enzyme that's cleaving bound thiols released out into the beer matrix? It's all in the cell. Um, this this is not a secreted protein. So, it's, okay. yeah, and it's kind of, you know, probably a lot of the methods to engineering strains would prefer them to be in the cell because the intercellular environment's a little bit more controlled for pH and proteases and, yeah, just a better especially when it's a yeast-derived um, gene, you know, we kind of keep it where, it where it normally is. Stay in your home. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's right. All right. Okay. Um, I want to ask a difficult question, and I might cut this depending on your response because I'd prefer to celebrate the advances of Omega, Berkeley yeast, and anyone else doing cool stuff rather than making things competitive. But here goes. Poster 159 from the 2020 World Brewing Congress presented by our friend Charles Denby indicates more than a hundredfold increase in volatile thiol concentrations using a modified tryptophanase gene versus strains overexpressing IRC7. Is the IRC7 approach less efficient? And if so, does that matter? Well, I would say... Um the data on that poster and, and what others have presented in the past um, hasn't necessarily showed the activity of IRC7. And, and we think that's because a lot of the approaches have used inactive alleles or, act, or alleles that kind of acquired their, their mutations and, and are no longer functional. So I think one of the things in the literature that we really had to tease out is just you know, our negative control, Chico, was active and it was telling us something very different from what everything in the literature was telling us. Um, so I think there's some confusion just in general over which allele of IRC7 is active. Um, and that comes through in that poster because there's shown to be no activity of IRC7. Uh, but because we found an active allele, uh, our results are very different. And um, yeah, so the TNAA enzyme is a very productive uh, beta lyse. It you know, they've modified it further to get rid of some of its side activity um, as an indolase. So it was making some very unpleasant characters <laughs> in, in beer as well. Um, and, it's a, and it's an enzyme from E. coli. Um, so I think if you're a researcher, you kind of understand what that means as far as the smell and aroma. Right, um, right. But it doesn't, you know, that they've come a long way and they they really built the story out on on their own kind of uh experiments and guidance and and we just in parallel were doing something very similar with irc7 and our results showed promise of irc7 and, and we continued in that direction versus taking another enzyme from another um you know bacterial source or uh, a transgenic kind of approach Cool. Great answer. Two, two very different, um, but effective and interesting approaches. Yeah. And one, one of the other um, points is that, you know, with our data, if you look at some of the um, information we share on Cosmic Punch, we have data that shows uh, wort fermentation with our, the British 5 strain, which is the parent, um, and then Cosmic Punch. And the Thiol levels, the 3SH levels of British 5 are below 10 PPT, and then the levels in just fermented wort with no hops added at all are above um, 400 PPT. 
So we are clearly getting IRC7 activity. Oh, yeah. And, and it's definitely, when brewing the beer, it's definitely apparent as well. So, you know, there's just different approaches. And, and I don't think there's a, really a reason to say one is preferred or better. It's just going to be up to the brewer to decide. Okay. Awesome. Anyone who has listened to episode 208 with Lauren Dagon won't be surprised to hear that one of the areas of research I'm most interested in is understanding thiol precursors and malt. And I'm sure I've mentioned on the show the guava pale ale that I brewed last year with one of Charles Denby's thiol releasing strains. The only hop addition in that beer was 0.1 pounds per barrel cascade in the whirlpool, and the beer tasted like I added guava juice to it. All that is to say, you've also witnessed this same effect with 3MA precursor and malt, and I'd like you to talk more about that because it's awesome and I think such an underutilized opportunity for brewers. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, I mean, I think, you know, until people start using the strain, that's one of those things that's hard to fathom or appreciate is that the, yes, the malt itself is uh, loaded with precursor and uh, really non-hop forward strains are frequently some of the better uh, canvases in which to use these strains because that that's where you get a focus on these very uh, very tropical notes um, from the released styles. And uh, when you actually do extremely hoppy beers, um, that it can be, you know, there's some sen- interesting sensory things going on. It's not as apparent. Uh, when you do those in a controlled manner where you have, you know, side by side with your parental strain, then it's, then you can definitely pick out where that note's coming from. Uh, but it's definitely not as obvious as when you do a beer like you're describing, where you do a very modest hop and the focus is on that dials and then it just punches you in the face. Yeah. Um, I would just agree with him in the, in the context of, you know, how these aromas come together, uh, when you're brewing a Nipa style beer and you have these dials coming in, uh, they're amplifying, uh, kind of that tropical note. But also on um, the palate, it's a, a nice, like, refreshing kind of almost brightness to the beer as well. It just kind of adds to, like, a fresh quality. So uh, from a lot of our brewers, what we've heard is, you know, if, if they have this beer on, you know, released, they maintain that, like, kind of freshness without getting a flabbier, kind of maltier quality as the beer ages. So that's something that we really find, even if it's not over the top in the context of those beers, when they have so much other, you know, aroma profile happening, it still gives such a, a nice, like, boost to the beer it's, itself. As, as we talked about with Laurent back on episode 208, um, there's different amounts of thiol precursor available in different malt types, which um, is not well understood yet. How did you, when you were trying to evaluate the prospect of your Cosmic Punch um, iterations, how did you account for that in your process? How did you look and say, look, okay, we want to test this against um, a malt that we know is going to be high in thiol precursor? Yeah, I mean, that is a a good question because uh, we didn't, I mean, we weren't pre-armed with that data. We didn't necessarily, we knew that from Laurent's work that there was variation in malt, but uh, we absolutely 
did not know which malt we should use. So it was just uh, sensory. We just used our noses. We did small you know, brew-in-a-bag fermentations uh, or brews uh, and then fermentations with the thialized yeast and, and had a panel of people smell them. Uh, and it was uh, pretty apparent that there's some differences depending on the base malt. So, uh, you know, in that respect, we've uh, kind of duplicated what Laurent has done. But there's, you know, we absolutely want to put and have been putting pressure on uh, you know, all the, the yeast vendors, sorry, the hop uh, vendors and the malt vendors to start looking at this because it is going to be something that brewers want to know and need to know to be able to maximize the output from these style producing strains. Yeah. And I, I would just say like in our initial trials, we were as interested in malt as we were in hops um, and understanding what the precursor kind of potential was. And, and I think the malt was one of those things that was very easy to assess because there's the baseline of styles you expect from the strain. Um, and, and you just see that like very enhanced or diminished depending on the malt source. So we've actually been oh, playing around with a lot of different base malts and malt varieties and, and different also like kiln products. Um, and Lawrence data is inspiring for us to be able to look at that. But also when we were starting out our experiments, we had no- noticed a massive difference in two base malts that were we, we were using. And we have a maltster here in, um, I guess, northern Indiana that had made a wind malt that doesn't even, that avoids the kilning process altogether. It's just dried in the sun. And um, one of our customers brewed with that and it, I mean, honestly, it was one of the most style present beers we've we've been able to do any tasting on so far. So I think there's a lot to work on there for sure. I think with different mold types, what we have seen is barley is definitely bringing a lot of precursor in. We found when we brew, we're not sure exactly the mechanism, but when we um, have a, additional incorporations of wheat beyond like 20%, you really start to lose that sensory from from the thiols coming out of the barley malt, and they're not sure if that's because wheat malt carries less precursor, or if there's some other um, kind of confounding factor there. But um, definitely, we found barley to be the most promising, and um, the higher the killing, just like Laurent showed, the lower um, the precursor. So very lightly killed malt tend to be favored. That's pretty interesting. Um, just for reference, my um, guava pale ale was fifty percent wheat, and it was. Uh, it would, you know, I wonder if it would have been, you know, more amplified if it was one hundred percent barley or or not. Um, but um, th- that's interesting. Yeah, it mm-hmm. could be also like malted wheat versus unmalted wheat. Um, the different temperature. Source, yeah, the anything, different source yeah. of wheat. So yep. just like barley, where you're going to see very variability, um, we'd expect that with you know, oats or wheat or rye or any of the other grains people are using. Coming up. A really interesting concept to be able to think about using sots to amplify, you know, exotic tropical flavors when that is definitely not what you normally do. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. I hope you'll join me on Thursday, October 28th in Cleveland for a live version of Ask the Brewmasters. Panelists include soon-to-be Master Brewers President Andy Tavikram from Market Garden Breweries, Travis Audette from Anheuser-Busch InBev, and Vinny Chilerzo from Russian River. If you haven't already registered for the conference, use the link in the show notes to register now. District Northern Illinois meets October 21st at Short Fuse Brewing. The District Northwest Fall meeting formerly at Hood River is now going to be virtual October 22nd. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. District Philly reclaims its old meeting spot at the Wyndham and Old City, November 5th and 6th. I'm looking forward to the District Mid-Atlantic meeting the weekend of November 12th in Virginia Beach. Hope to see you there. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. I hope you'll join me in Cleveland Friday, October 29th for something really special. I'll be doing a live interview with fan favorite Joe Hertrick as he receives the Master Brewers Distinguished Life Service Award. Joe has been educating brewers and maltsters for more than 50 years, and I can't wait to give conference attendees a glimpse into Joe's lifetime of service. If you still haven't registered for the conference, do it now, and don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now back to the show. if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but what is phantasm? Uh, so great pronunciation. That's how you say it. Phantasm. Um, really? I got it right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so another thing that kind of our initial studies was like really excited about was the potential of bringing 
um, grape precursors into fermentations because we knew grapes are one of the other abundant sources of these molecules. Um, and we were thinking, well, are we using juice? Do we need juice from a given region? Is there variety specific effect? I mean, all that's been kind of shown in the wine world. Um, so we were kind of limited to what we could get our hands on, but then coinciding with the development of Cosmic Punch comes this really neat product out of New Zealand, um, which uses the like, kind of the waste stream of wine production, the, the dried grape um, after press, and freeze dries it and makes it into a product that can be used in, in beer fermentations. So that's what Phantasm is. Um, it's incredibly interesting because it comes from the region that produces the most style forward wines in the world. Um, and it and it's packed with precursor. We've shown in our experiments that um, additions of Phantasm in the Whirlpool. Um, we've also done additions in the MASH. There's um, many ways to use this product, but they definitely amplify style character in, in beer. Um, and a lot of our customers have used the combination of Phantasm with Cosmic Punch and have found that to be really exciting as well. Is it, um, are the results, do you get different flavors? I mean, is it, is it different thials or just more of the same? Uh, it's definitely bringing, I would say, like the similar 3SH um, component that the malt brings. Um, it, is okay. diff- it is different from hops. Hops tend to be a little bit more into the grapefruit and sharper. Um, maybe rhubarb or, or the ca- uh, even sometimes caddy kind of style character, but the phantasm and the malt sources are more favoring really like nice passion fruit and grapefruit aromas. Okay. I believe you also looked at Sauvignon Blanc juice additions. How does that compare to phantasm? Yeah. So the grape uh, juice experiments are really exciting because that's another way of bringing precursor into the beer. And again, you're still going to see a variety specific effect. You're going to want regions uh, that are known for really punchy Sauvignon Blanc. So um, similar to a Phantasm, a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc um, juice would be really great to use and to load up the beer with precursor. But the, I think the advantage of Phantasm over juice is that you with juice, you kind of add some of the more simple sugars. So um, the beer is a little bit drier. You also get a little Venus character um, added into that beer as well. So it, I think that leans towards the Eno beer style where you're really molding into something different. But adding Phantasm can just be the NEPA that you really want to pack more pre- precursor into. Just using... That is another raw material to feed the yeast these precursor compounds and push styles even more in the finished product. You've done some experiments with mash hopping to increase thiol potential. What's the story there? Yeah, that, this is, uh, I think, one of the neater things to come from this research. It, it kind of springs from uh, Laurent's observations on um, in malt, and and I think he had some experiments showing that um, you know, like protein rest could enhance the amount of uh, 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 cysteine-bound precursors. So, uh, the when we saw that, our our thought was, well, what happens if we put hops in the mash, which are you know loaded in these kind of more complex uh, precursors, um, like the glutathione ones, 
and take advantage of, you know, all the protease activity that's present in a, uh, in a mash, uh, from all the barley enzymes. And the theory was that the barley enzymes could convert some of that glutathione bound precursor to the cis bound precursor, um, which is, you know, ultimately the IRC7, uh, substrate. And, uh, these are when they're, you know, in the cis bound form, glutathione form, they are soluble and non volatile. So we knew that they would survive the brewing process. So, you know, you could go on and do your full boil uh, and everything. And those precursors should survive all of that, still be present in the wort. And now they're accessible to the yeast to amplify uh, the, the free thiols. And that was exactly what we saw, um, is that we could throw, mash, uh, throw hops in the mash and yield higher thiol uh, aroma, which, you know, is, I mean... On the face, sounds kind of ridiculous because we're effectively telling you to use uh, hops in the mash to enhance your aroma profile, which is you know the opposite of what you're taught. Um, is the the later in the process you use hops, the more uh, aromatic you can get. So kind of throws that on its head, but the you know science makes sense behind it, and it's actually what we saw in practice. Um, so the exercise from there has been trying to you know figure out how much hops to use, which hops to use, because uh, hops themselves are variable in the amount of precursor. Um, and there's really just not much information out there on the amount of the precursor present because until there were yeast that could release these uh, thiols from the precursor form, it truly didn't matter how much you know, precursor there was in the hop. Uh, so this is another area where we're starting to try to put pressure on hops manufacturers to examine this sort of thing because it's, again, going to be a useful uh, metric for brewers and planning out their uh, beers. That is the first reasonable hypothesis for mash hopping that I've ever heard. I've always <laughs> thought mash hopping was ridiculous, but now I want to try it. Yeah, um, I think it plays into um, interesting because you're also getting a little bit of IBU utilization from that mash edition. It's, it seems to be about a third of what you would expect out of a beginning of boil edition, but it's a night, nice, you know, people aren't using a lot of hot side additions or minimizing bitterness, but this is a way of putting hop character into the beer without adding a lot of bitterness as well. So let's say that I move an addition, you know, I, I decrease the amount of my whirlpool addition and move some of that to mash hopping here. Um, how different are the results going to be? I mean, am I going to get um, uh, drastically different flavors out of that mash hopping or is it going to be comparable to some of the same stuff i'd get from from whirlpool so in the context of uh mash hopping i would think of it really for use it for two reasons to you know it's going to contribute some bitterness um and so always factor that into it uh but then also just to amplify the thiol precursor specifically uh beyond that um i don't think there's any other reason to do it you're you know we didn't this doesn't completely throw all the other rules out the door like if you threw mosaic hops in the mash you're going to lose everything else about mosaic you know all, all those uh aromatic all and, and everything else yeah. you're just going to get the thiols yeah absolutely that's all going to be you know boiled off throughout the process so right. this is a, definitely an important point to make here is don't start throwing citra or mosaic or any of these sexy expensive hops in the mash um, the, 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 what you're getting from putting hops in the mash is amplifying the thiol specifically and the thiol precursor. So it's available to the yeast later on. 
and contributing a little bit of bitterness. But um, you know, if you're wanting those monoterpene additions from Whirlpool, you're still going to need to do that because this is going to be lost when you're using them in the mash. Okay, and one last question about that. Um, specifically, you mentioned that there's sort of the protein enzymes working here. Um, does this only work if our mash temperature is low enough that it has, um, you know, a decent amount of protease activity that it's, a, you know, in this like protein rest temperature range? Or is it going to still be effective if your mash temperature is, is higher than that? Oh, it's definitely, we did um, a couple of those experiments in the beginning as well, where we incorporated protein rests or we um, mashed in at um, sacrification. They're really wasn't a significant difference in the in the amount of thiols in the finished beer, although we did see subtle shifts in the amount of precursor, and we saw a little bit of a benefit with the protein rest. It didn't end up really panning out in the finished beer. So um, that's interesting. I think there's maybe potential for protein rest, but it's certainly not required. We found that the normal mash in at 148, 154 is totally um, sufficient to get thiols in the resulting beer. And that enhancement out of the mash hop as well. Yeah. Lance, something from the presentation you gave to to District Texas jumped out at me. On one of the slides where you were talking about thiol precursors, you stated that high alpha and C hops are high in bound thiols. This might be a better question for Tim Wallen from episode 181, but does that mean brewers could potentially get just as much tropical aroma out of some old school hop varieties versus their hyped up pricey proprietary counterparts? Yes. I mean, it really does mean that some hops are going to yield, you know, flavors that are kind of unexpected. And uh, a good example of that is Sots. Uh, Sots is actually, uh, and you can see this in, I, I think there's Laurent's work from, um, uh, thiol potential in hops and the sots regularly had uh, much much higher levels of thiol precursor than other varieties uh, but like you mentioned the the sea hops do as well but sots is almost like on another level so it's it's a really interesting concept to be able to think about using sots to amplify you know exotic tropical flavors when that is definitely not what you normally do um, Actually, some of the more interesting beers we've made are with the the our thialized lager version, where we only do mash hopping with sod. So we we get all of our bittering, uh, as well as amplify the amount of thial precursor available to the yeast, all by a mash addition. And uh, as Laura alluded to earlier, these are kind of the most popular beers uh, with our staff. They we always fly through them. They're just very simple cheap beers that have a focus on this uh dial note that's uh, very pleasing awesome um could you comment on sort of um the effects of repitching is there any uh variation in the uh in in the enzyme you know as this as the strain gets repitched uh, as any of the thialized strains get repitched um or is it pretty much going to be consistent from one fermentation cycle to the next um, yeah, I'm glad you asked this question because we do get it fairly frequently. So hopefully this hits a, a broader audience. But uh, no, it's a it's a completely stable genetic change in the yeast. So the primary factor in the thiol output from batch to batch is going to be precursor present in your grist. So it can vary from batch to batch for sure. But that's because of your brewing choices, not because of the yeast. The yeast is just acting on what you put in front of it. So 
the totally stable genetic change with the yeast, um, and so your thiol output depends on your recipe. With your modified strains, you've seen Whirlpool hops actually decrease thiols compared to malt alone. Talk about that. Um, well, this is interesting because I don't think this, I think this is kind of a concept that maybe isn't thought about a lot, but is, is definitely happening with other hop compounds as well. Um, kind of less is more when you're adding hops to bring aroma. Um, some of those aroma compounds are more susceptible to oxidation or potentially even would be um, bound up by more of the leafy material if if you're using an excess amount of hops. So um, that's kind of one of our rationales for why whirlpool hopping or early dry hopping wouldn't result in as high of level of styles. Uh, potentially that, you know, they're kind of, as much as they're bringing to the table, they're also bringing some negative um, activity as well that limits the thial output from our yeast. Um, maybe maybe they're sopping them up before the yeast is able to convert them, or maybe those free thials are then reacting um, with other hop compounds that prevent them from um, kind of maintaining throughout fermentation. I'd like to end on a similar note to how you, your District Texas presentation ended and where a lot of these discussions seem to end up. And that's basically, hey, the sensory of thiols is super complicated. Hop chemistry is super complicated. There's a lot we still don't know. Comment on all of that. And other than just telling brewers, hey, good luck, go have fun and experiment with all these interesting variables. What practical advice do you have for brewers who want to navigate all of this what should we focus on? And should we be less obsessed with the next $18 a pound hop variety and spend a little more time on understanding the science that might help us get better aroma out of the $7 a pound hop varieties or even just certain types of malt? That's a really good question. We are, and I'll start by saying we are still very much actively researching, you know, how best to use these strains because uh, uh, a lot of this stuff was. A surprise to us we didn't it wasn't we didn't create the strain and uh, freestyles we put it out there and that's the end of the story uh we're we're diving in to try to figure out you know the best hot products to use the best timing in which to use the hot products because we have seen kind of these uh unexpected complications arising where you know like with whirlpool hopping with t90 pellets fairly you know dramatically cutting down on the bio out, output in the final Beer. Now it's certainly well above threshold compared to you know the controlled parental strain, but it's not what it could be. Uh, and so we've been obsessively trying to figure out you know the best methods to use to maximize your uh, file output. Interestingly, we haven't, and this is still fairly preliminary data. We haven't seen uh, much problem with later dry hopping with T90 pellets. We actually get uh, an enhancement of files then. So um, I mean, we have you know some early ideas on the chemistry that might be happening there as far as like why whirlpool is different from late dry hopping but we definitely don't see as much of a diminution in thiols with late dry hopping so you know you can still keep using t90s there uh but there are also you know other products i, I think spectrum might be one of them uh meant for kind of cold side additions of hops uh that don't have all that plant matter um so but again we're still working through this 
because there were a lot of there's a lot of unexpected uh, chemistry that people just haven't looked at before here. Yeah, and I think uh, you think about when cryo hops became a thing, and there was some, you know, really fast buy-in, but other people, you know, knew they were different products and were kind of skeptical. Uh, I think, you know, this context of you know bringing dials in um, with a modified yeast and allowing, you know, chemistry to happen during fermentation, maybe these newer hop products, the extracts, the hop distillates, um, really have a place in these beers and, and are teaching us something new. Like maybe we didn't think about how dials were maybe more susceptible to, um, you know, early dry hopping or whirlpool hopping. And now we're getting more information. Maybe we can design these recipes a little bit better. And I, and I would just, you know, this is a tool. I wouldn't replace your $18 hops. And I'm certainly excited about the next, next ones coming out. Um, but I think giving brewers an idea of really a new application of yeast and, and bringing out aroma in the beer and potentially even b- building new styles um, as a result. You know, some of the hoppy lagers that are um, more popular, the cold IPAs or the New Zealand pills, um, Eno beers. Uh, more beers that are trying to really bring out this component are really good um, beers to learn on and understand more. I think we're only beginning to understand more about, you know, how to design these beers better. Cool. We're still figuring this out. There's just lots of new chemistry here uh, to to tease through to figure out the best way to use this because you know these unexpected things it's not just use a thiol producing strain it's going to put out thiols there's a lot of interaction between all the ingredients you're using uh so the the story is definitely not concluded and it's uh taking a lot of interesting twists and turns but we're definitely going to be very forthright with everything we're learning so that brewers can um, use these products to their full potential yeah just go ahead Oh, I would just say the inspiration that we have from our customers too and the different approaches they've taken. There's a lot of like excitement around the concept. Um, so I just see the potential of people just doing something really different off the wall, um, bringing in the phantasm, doing mash hopping, but also experimenting with malt types and um, you know beer wine hybrids. I just really think that it's giving a lot of inspiration and brewers are coming up with some really interesting beers. Okay. I'm out of questions. Anything else you want to mention? All right. Well, we also would like to make sure to call out all the people that helped us get to where we are because this was a long um, road and a a lot of research going into this project. Uh, So first, just some of the people in our team at Omega, our R and D team, Keith Lacey and Chris Bernardo. Uh, the the whole gang of Adams and Aries at Maplewood Brewing uh, were uh, the first people to use Cosmic Punch commercially. So they were. It's it's really great to have partners that are willing to you know work with experimental things, and they were uh, among the first, uh, as well as Matt Young at Half Acre, um, who has at this point tried both Cosmic Punch and the the mysterious Lager version. Yeah. And uh, lastly, you would definitely have to mention Scott Janish because um, we have had a lot of calls and had a lot of conversations on styles and the best way to pack them in to beer. And he is totally just one of the best people to talk cops with and, and has been a huge resource for us. 
And also uh, Joss at uh, Phantasm, uh, you know, for just that amazing coincidence of bringing, you know, that product to market at the same time that we had the strain that was going to be able to make the most out of it. So we've had a lot of good discussions with uh, Joss as well, too, to, um, like, yeah, again, to just to get as much thiols out of a beer as we can. Yeah, and then the I guess the last thing would be we wouldn't be anywhere without the ability to measure these compounds. <laughs> that was the biggest struggle in the beginning of our experiments is just getting analytical data to support what we were experiencing on sensory. D- measuring these compounds is actually just a huge struggle, and there aren't many people in the world who can do it. Uh, so we've had the good fortune of working with Laurent Degan at uh, Nisios. Uh, in France, they're, I mean, hands down, the the world leaders in being able to measure these difficult to measure compounds, and we've uh, we rely on them heavily and fully trust everything we get from them. That was Laura Burns and Lance Shaner here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a link to their District Texas presentation, or better yet catch up with all three of us at the 2021 Master Brewers Conference in Cleveland. I hope you'll join me in Cleveland Friday, October 29th for something really special. I'll be doing a live interview with fan favorite Joe Hertrick as he receives the Master Brewers Distinguished Life Service Award. Joe has been educating brewers and maltsters for more than 50 years, and I can't wait to give conference attendees a glimpse into Joe's lifetime of service. If you still haven't registered for the conference, do it now and don't miss this once in a lifetime opportunity. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. I hope you'll join me on Thursday, October 28th in Cleveland for a live version of Ask the Brewmasters. Panelists include soon-to-be Master Brewers President Andy Tavikram from Market Garden Breweries, Travis Audette from Anheuser-Busch InBev, and Vinny Chilerzo from Russian River. If you haven't already registered for the conference, use the link in the show notes to register now.